classical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here at the Psychedelic Salon. So, how are you doing today? Hope you're not having uh, withdrawal symptoms from not having a trialogue to listen to. Before long, I'll be playing some more of the trialogue series, as well as a few other talks by Terrence McKenna. But in the meantime, I thought it would be interesting to hear from a few other people who are on what Castaneda's Don Juan called a path with heart. And uh, one of those people is a good friend of mine, Matt Palomary. And what you're about to hear is a recording of a conversation I had with Matt a few days ago when I stopped by his place for one of our morning chats over a cup of tea. And uh, one of the problems that I've found with interviewing people I know really well is that it's hard to go over territory that we've already covered more times than we care to remember. I know that during the recording of our conversation, there were a few points where I wanted to go off in another direction because I, I knew there'd be an interesting story that spun off the one being told. But like uh, a lot of tripping tales, they aren't nearly as interesting as we like to think they are. So I did my best to keep this interview in focus, but mainly what you're going to hear is uh, not that much different from any of our regular conversations. But enough of me talking about what I'm about to play for you. Why don't we just take a listen and you can hear for yourself what kinds of ideas are on the mind of my good friend, Matt Palomary. I guess maybe, uh, you know, it's kind of difficult to interview you because we know each other so well and uh, we know each other's stories and uh, which ones have been exaggerated and which ones haven't. But uh, I think back to uh, all the miles that we've traveled since we've uh, met at that little ayahuasca circle that a Peruvian shaman was leading and lo and behold I sit down next to you and start making my little space and I see this book uh, called Land Without Evil and the only other time I'd seen that was uh, in the hands uh, about 10 days earlier of uh, Terrence McKenna over in Hawaii and uh, he was carrying that around the conference and reading through it and I know Mary C and I kept trying to figure out what was he reading what is that book and we wrote it down and we planned to uh, look it up on Amazon when we got back, and, and uh, anyhow, we we uh, I get to the session, and uh, lo and behold, there's this book, and I ask you where you got a copy of it, and I guess I'll let you pick up from there and tell me uh, where you found a copy of Land Without Evil. Well, I found a copy from my publisher because it was my first published novel, which was the fifth novel that I had written at the time. And I had met Terence previously down in Mexico at the uh, Entheobotany Seminars in Ushmal. And we connected. I wonder if I should get into the story about how I... I suppose I should because it all ties in with the writing. Okay. I've been attending major writers' conferences for a number of years. I've been actually teaching now for 18, I believe. And I was at a conference, a major conference, and I wrote a short story about young man who had gotten some hallucinogenic substances from uh, a shaman and he did not heed the warnings that the shaman gave him now way back I'm talking 35 years ago when I first encountered LSD and it was in the Boston area and it used to be incredibly powerful back then 
I mean, the doses were mm-hmm. Jurassic. It was a normal dose. They were four-way hits. It wasn't the, the light doses that are floating. No, this now. stuff is like, I don't even want to go there. But this stuff was being made at MIT, mm. which everybody knows is Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but we always called it Mental Institute for the Touched. <laughs> and we used to get it from a guy named My Favorite Martian. Uh, I, I, I won't go any further into that, but the point is, during those first experiences, I always was very fearful of losing my mind because then when the LSD would peak, um, you wouldn't know if you're ever going to come back. And it was a big fear that you weren't. So that was the essence of this story, is that this guy takes his stuff, he doesn't listen, and he starts to peak and peak and peak, and he doesn't come back. Mm. He ends up dying and killing his girlfriend, and he checks out. It was a straightforward horror story. Mm-hmm. So I was at this conference where there were like romances and children's books and kind of literary things. There wasn't anything dark being written. Mm-hmm. And I went into a workshop, and this woman there who ran the workshop she would take your story and then she would read it. So nobody would know who wrote it. Mm. And then you get honest criticism. Mm-hmm. So she read this story and it got a standing ovation. Mm. And it ended up winning, winning a fiction award. And um, after that, when people found out I read it, all these old acid heads came swarming out of the woodwork and they were all over me. Was, at the conference? Yeah, at the conference. It was <laughs> really amazing. You know, this might be a good point uh, to, to interject that... Uh, uh, I know a lot of people out there that listen to these podcasts uh, think they might be the only one in their town that's uh, doing these things, but I think the the evidence is such that uh, there's a lot more people involved in, in these psychedelic medicines than MCI. Way more, but the thing is, with the, with the way our government is, uh, and there's a lot of fear that people aren't walking around advertising because then you're looking for trouble, so you don't want to advertise. And I'm not advertising. Mind you, I'm talking about years ago here. <laughs> right. Anyway, um, after all this, this little old lady came to me. She was 78 years old, and she had the brightest eyes I've ever seen. And she said to me, I did some of the original LSD experiments in the 50s. Mm. And I'm a psychologist, and I had this article published in a Hawaiian medical journal. And she wanted me to have it. And she wanted my story, so of course I gave it to her. Well, lo and behold, uh, about three weeks later, I get a little package in the mail of cassette tapes. And they look at it, and it says Terrence McKenna. And I'm like, well, who the hell is Terrence McKenna? Because I didn't know. So I put this tape in, and I hear this voice. Well, you know, he's now in a psychedelic state. You know, <laughs> The stoned Mr. Rogers voice. Yeah, and I'm like, story. who is this weirdo? You know? And I started listening to what he was saying. And I was like, oh, my God. This guy's got something to say, and I ended up listening to the tapes over and over again, and this lady, Marjorie, uh, had been sent, kept sending me the tapes until she died. Hmm. And she was going on about how she couldn't relate to anybody in her generation at all, because they had no conception right. of what was going on. And she'd obviously done some deep LSD experiments. Oh, very deep, and from a, from a psychological standpoint. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was this big Hawaiian medical journal hmm. she was published in. So after that, I started reading Terrence. And uh, to me, Food of the Gods was his best, absolute, seminal, brilliant work. And then I got the opportunity to meet him and, uh, in Ushmal there. And I gave him a copy of a short story collection that I had published at the time and told him the story I just told you. And let, let me just interrupt one second. Uh, the Ushmal conference is really also the famous Palenque conference. It's one year yes. they held it outside of Palenque, although That's you right. and I have been to Palenque t- together. But uh, yes. that was the Ushmal year. That's right. And so I told Terrence that story that I just said, and he really got a kick out of that, and we connected. So I got to go down there a few times and meet with him. 
So during this time, I was working on my novel, Land Without Evil, which has to do with first contact between Jesuit missionaries and Indians in the rainforest uh, in Paraguay. But I told it from the Indian's point of view, which was a perspective I hadn't seen done. And I worked and worked at it. So at the time the book was getting ready to uh, go into print, that's, that's the time frame where t- we found out about Terrence's illness, mm-hmm. which, you know, was, once everybody found out, it was really rapid. Right. When he, you know, right. he was gone. So um, I had a celebration with my publisher. The books came back from the printer. I left work. We had a celebration, and we cracked the palette and got the first books. And um, I went home that night, and I'm sitting there at 10 o'clock at night, and I get a phone call. And it's from a good friend of mine. Actually, uh, uh, the members of the salon know Jacques because his music. Uh, okay, Catal Hoyuk. That's my bro. That's my homie. That's that's the big major Terrence connection there. So uh, Jacques calls me and he says, "I'm going to the All Chemical Arts Conference in Hawaii. Are you going?" And I said, "Man, I can't. I'm buried because my book's coming on. I just got the book from the printer." And I said, "When do you leave?" And he says, "I'm leaving tomorrow morning." I said, "When are you going to bed?" He says, "I'm not." So uh, this is 10 o'clock at night, so I grabbed the very first book from my printing, the absolute very first book, signed it to Terrence, and put together a care package for him because I knew, and I believe All Chemical was his last conference. It, it was. And so, I mean, I knew. And I drove two and a half hours to Jacques up north of L.A. and gave him the book. We hung out for a while and shared some... Uh, Medicine. Some, some, some memories. <laughs> some memories. <laughs> we smoked some memories and uh, gave him the book for Terrence because uh, Terrence knew Jacques very well. And I thought if he got it, I wanted it, I could have FedExed it, but I wanted personal right. hand it from my bro. So he did. And Terrence got it. And um, lo and behold, a few weeks later, I think it was two weeks later maybe, I'm going to this. Um, Peruvian ayahuasca session, and in comes Lorenzo, and he's talking about Terence McKenna and this book, and I'm just like, getting more excited, more excited, and he's going on about the book, and all of a sudden I popped out with the book, and then you know his jaw dropped, and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. you know, where'd that come from? And I told him the story, so that's part, how we part met. Part of the story, you, I don't know if I've ever told you that, uh, and I hope to play this in the salon one day if I can get a better recording of it. Uh, there was a well, part of the workshop there. Uh, Terrence McKenna and Tom Robbins did a session together, mm-hmm. and there, it's really a wonderful session. It's just the the copy I have of the sound. You can hear the air conditioning so loud, and I'll eventually find a good copy of it, I'm sure. And but after that, uh, we all decided we wanted to send some positive energy to Terrence. So we rearranged the room, put a chair in the middle. Terrence sat on the chair. And all of us, uh, I guess there must have been 50 of us, we laid on the floor with our heads toward Terrence, and then we did a, a meditation with some music. And the whole time, Terrence is sitting there holding your book. Oh, wow. That's one of my oh, favorite wow. images of Terrence, sitting there with all these people. And, of course, poor Terrence, he didn't quite know what to do. You've know, you got 50 people laying there with their heads at you. You, know, you probably feel a little awkward. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't flip through the book a little <laughs> but uh i i have a good memory of your book and terrence so wow. when you when you pulled out that book that night uh i don't think i had to take any ayahuasca that night to to get a high i mean that just sent me off and i have to i'll be honest i've told you this before uh i the audience uh, uh out in the salon here might uh, get to meet you someday and and uh 
I guess the best compliment uh, a friend of mine uh, gave you is that you're somebody he'd like to walk through a dark alley with because <laughs> he'd co- you'd cover his back. Uh, you want to give a little background before we get to the shamanism part? Sure. Uh, a little background oh. of where, from whence you have come. Thank you. Um, I, uh, I was born a poor black child. No, just kidding. I still have from Steve Martin. But uh, I did grow up in an Irish Catholic ghetto. And my friends were all car thieves. My father was a coding addict quite nutty and I grew up with lots of violence and I've been through lots of dark dark places and so um, I've realized over time that the darkness has been my path and as a matter of fact my first published works was called The Small Dark Room of the Soul which is a short story collection it has to do with the darkness and um, I've done a lot of healing work with people um, in different modes with different things and one of my favorite sayings, and I, and, I, and I do this to date, is I tell people that I'll go anywhere in the dark with you you want to go. Because um, I've been in some real hells myself, and I know what it's like. And having been in the territory, I've learned how to navigate those spaces. And it, it hasn't been easy. And um, even I've discovered that even when I decide that I don't necessarily need to go into the dark, it sometimes comes to me anyway. Hmm. And I have a kamikaze approach. Most people try things uh, small amounts at a time, and they build up. Uh, whether I want to or not, I always seem to take the, the Jurassic hardhead megadose in the beginning, and then it's harder for me to learn the subtleties of things. Um, and that always seems to have been my path. And I'm thankful for it. Um, I'm still alive here as far as I know. Well, you've, you've uh, also done the safety precautions, too. And uh, let, Let's uh, circle back to, uh, back to the MIT days. How, did, uh, how old were you when you first found uh, psychedelics, and uh, what was that all about? How did that happen? I was, let me think a moment. I was 17. And back then, um, it was just recently illegal then. Hmm. And this is the aftermath of Tim Leary in Harvard. And um, I was really tapped in because the people I knew were people I grew up with. And I, I mean, criminal element was part of where I grew up. So it, it was kind of a, a natural thing. But then we used to get those, those God, those four-way hits. It was $90 for 100 Was that Orange Sunshine? There was Orange Barrel, Orange Sunshine, Blue Cheer, uh, <laughs> God, uh, Yellow Sunshine, Purple Microdot. Um, there was uh, God, and then the blotters. There was there was Green Frog. There was Mister Natural. Um, it's what Terrence would call the glory days. Truly, the glory days. Yeah, the window pane. That was amazing. Oh, stuff. window pane was good. Yeah, uh, and the, and you know, and it took then. It, I must have done it eight or nine times before I could handle the whole hit. Hmm. Um, and of course, the first time I had my full blown experience was with some major drug dealer types I found out later one of them was a murderer and he was threatening me with a knife and I was laughing at him because I didn't think he was serious I found out later he was him and his friends had thrown a guy in front of a train that, that's kind of like what I'd call a bad trip is to take acid with a murderer yeah it was pretty terrifying um, pretty terrifying but um, for some reason I kept going back you know, that's, that's the interesting thing. I, I don't know if, if we can make a generality here, but I know in my own case, I, I first came to these substances uh, really for the recreational use. Uh, and 
I, I, I guess I maybe came back because even the, the heavy-duty trips had some kind of an upside, and I didn't realize I was learning as I went along. But for those that, uh, that get the calling, it seems like eventually this uh, recreational use turns into something more uh, uh, dedicated and serious, uh, which it obviously has for you. Yeah, that, that, you know, that's a good point because this is going to bring us to a direction that uh, I think is important. And that is, in my case, growing up, I grew up in a tough place, and I was always looking for a way out, one way or the other. And I've uh, written a memoir about this, which is going to be out in a couple of years, and that'll unfold the way it's supposed to. So a lot of these things are in there. But, you know, I started out when a kid. We would um, put our hands behind our knees and squat down and squat up and do deep breaths about ten times and then hold your breath and somebody squeeze you and you'd pass out. You know? That's when you were a little kid. Yeah, that was cool. I did that as much as I could until I found glue. You know? <laughs> and then I went through a period of sniffing glue until that started getting really out of hand. And, and it was interesting because I, I always have this sense that I've been protected. Mm-hmm. And all my friends one day were going down to have a big glue sniffing party down by the subway station. And uh, I had decided at that point that I was getting out of it because I had done too many weird things. And I didn't go. And they all got busted by the cops. And so I got out of that. But um, when I started getting into um, LSD, I had already sort of had a primer by sniffing glue. Mm. But I went, you know, growing up, all of my parents, not my parents necessarily. Well, my dad was a codeine, but my friend's parents were alcoholics. Alcohol was everywhere. So, you know, I, I used to steal the big kid's beer, and I would drink like a beer or two when I was like seven or eight, which is, by the way, I started smoking cigarettes when I was seven. I'm way done with that for years, but just to give you an idea of the environment. In and, fact, you're a vaporizer man, I might uh, uh, It's the best, most ecologically uh, way of ingesting um, all around in more ways than I can even begin to tell you. So then, you know, the alcohol was there, and I found cannabis very soon after that, and I actually always had more of an inclination toward the cannabis. Uh, no matter how much cannabis I smoked, I could remember what I did the next day, you know, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> I mean, there might have been patches, but, you know, overall. But, uh, you know, and then I started working up, and I, and I, you know, did lots. There was a period when I was doing LSD every other day, hmm. because as anybody who's worked with it knows, you can't really do it two days in a row unless you want to, like, quadruple the dose. It's a diminishing effect rapidly. Well, I've, I've got another procedure for that, but that's for another yeah, day, another yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. But the point is, I was doing it every other day for months. And um, How old were you then? Then 17, mm-hmm. 18. Uh, mostly when I was 17, I'd say. And, you know, God, getting attacked by snakes coming out of the grounds and getting grabbed by the cops one time, shining a flashlight in my eyes, and I had a carload of beer. And uh, But you were on acid. Peeking. And <laughs> worried about the beer. Oh, God. This, you know, I won't get into the details, but um, they had found the car in the parking lot and dragged me out of a high school dance. Two cops came in. I'm peeking, and they just dragged me out, putting the flashlight in my eyes, and I'm just like, <sighs> but my instincts were on, and I said to them, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know where this beer came from. I never saw it before. You're here with my car doors open. For all I know, you put it there, and you can have it for all I care because I don't know anything about it. And they let me go. But the rest of the night, man, the trees were melting. The, the earth was ending. It was pretty cataclysmic. Let, let me uh, ask you, uh, this is a thought just popped in my head, that I'd uh, never really paid much uh, attention to this. You know, I, I found these medicines, I was quite old. I was 42 years old before I, I had my first psychedelic experience. Uh, 
And uh, a few months back, I remember on uh, the Dope Fiend on his podcast talked about uh, young people under 25 and and uh, having a hot lot of cannabis could affect the brain. And then just a, a couple weeks ago, there was a big article in the uh, local paper. I think it was a book review about uh, the fact that that physically, until we're in our mid 20s, there's still a lot going on in in, in brain development and. You know, I, I don't want to uh, encourage a lot of 17-year-old kids to take your path because, quite mm-hmm. frankly, your path has not been a joyous, no. <laughs> bountiful no. path up to now. So, that's, a, that's a good point. So I don't know what your thoughts are about that, age groups. Yeah, well, let me share this. A lot of my friends... And, and I don't want to get preaching here, too. No, 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 no. no. That, that's a very good point because I make it in my book. A lot of my friends are dead. Hmm. A lot of them, if they're not dead, they're doing hard time. And the ones who aren't dead and aren't doing hard time uh, th- there's a few remaining who have the bar stools with their names stitched on them, and maybe the rest are in AA. Mm. Um, my path and what I took was absolutely, totally, 100% the wrong way to do it. But I had no guidance. Right. No guidance whatsoever. That's, uh, that's the problem with the war on drugs. Right. Nobody's training people this, how to this, do this. Because there's so much disconception. God, all this stuff about LSD screwing up your uh, your chromosomes, you know, and the lies, the, the whole... Can I swear here? Yeah, sure. The whole bullshit ecstasy campaign about holes in your brain. I mean, there's all lies. All Give me a mean. break. So you, so you don't know what to believe. And, and all you can ultimately go on, and this is one of the key tenets of shamanism, all you can ultimately go on is your own experience. Yeah. So these ways I'm telling you in these adventures and thrills and chills and spills and horror stories, don't do this at home. <laughs> well, you know what this article about the brain development made, uh, the point they made is that not that the cognitive ability isn't as good as, as somebody twice, three times their age. It's that the emotional circuits take over too often. And that's why you see young kids, you know, banging walls and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of uh, people under 20 who are just ready to go down and, and, and smoke dope in front of the police station because yeah. it should be allowed. Well, emotionally, I can I can sync with that. But the reason you're not in jail and your friends are is that they were so young, I think, that probably Absolutely. they let their emotions uh, take hold. Yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer in certain experiences shouldn't be had until a certain age because one of the things people joke about it with me but one of the things is I've done so many things now that on one level I don't have to do anything anymore Yeah. because I'm so out there but I don't consider myself out there I mean I consider myself to be expanded um, because um, this gets off and I'm, it's a little tangential here sure. but I, I, think it's, I think it applies one of the things that Terrence said that struck me is that um, your, your brain is like a radio receiver and so people, the mundanes, as the science fiction people call them, or the normal people, are tuned into one mode of consensual reality. If you're really into Jesus and the Bible and all that good stuff, then you're tuned into that, but you're not open to anything else. So what different experiences will bring is the fact that you can get off that station and move your dial around. So you can take a substance like, like psilocybin or, or ayahuasca, and change your radio station to get way off the dial, all right? And then you can take something else and get way off the dial. So if you keep getting way off the dial, what happens is eventually you break that that lock, and then you're actually starting to gain real freedom. But having said that, I, I, I want to stress that there's a lot of substances that are not good. Crystal meth, bad. Obviously heroin, 
bad, you know. Cocaine, crack cocaine, bad. Matter of fact, uh, I've worked with the coca plant in Peru extensively um, in sacred traditions. And what they say is that uh, when you have crack and heart attacks and all the stuff that goes on with cocaine, the reason is because you're disrespecting the spirit of that plant. Mm. And that's the price you pay because you're not paying it the respect that it's due. When it's used in its natural form in the ancient tradition, it's a very, very healthy plant. It's one of the best foods in the world for you. It's high in vitamins, minerals, calcium, potassium, vitamin A, C. It's a very complete food. It suppresses your appetite. It's good for you, used in the right way. But um, in the wrong way, abusively, it's bad. And during my journeys and the things that I've done, I went through my period with the speed, you know, with Mm -hmm. the crystal meth and the speed and and all that. And uh, I have to say, and I'm not just saying this, those who want I had truly sort of, for lack of better words, there's no lack of better words, I truly had direct satanic experiences. Mm, really? I mean, I tapped into satanic energies in a big way, in, in really hairy and scary ways. And it was always with the speed. Mm. Because one of the things I've been learning all along is that whatever you do, there's always a price to pay. Right. I mean, even if, even if you smoke a joint. You know? Mm-hmm. Or if you eat the vaporizer. Okay. I know if I... If I uh, what happened to smoke a certain amount, I feel a little slow the next morning. Um, there's nothing wrong with doing something. It's like, yeah, you want to go out and have a drink, go have a drink. But if you're going to go out and have a drink every day from 9 o'clock in the morning until 9 o'clock at night, you got a problem and you're not long for this world and you're deadening your awareness and you're dulling your awareness. So, you know, the whole thing with, with, with Crystal um, is that you're, you're putting into this thing and you're creating a deficit and the more you put in, the more the deficit comes. And I've seen people get schizophrenic and really whacked out and dissociated right. uh, from doing yeah. it because it's bad news. Yeah. Just like... Well, it's not psychedelic either. No, it's not. It's not. Um, and incidentally, um, MDMA is an amphetamine, but it's different. But regardless, there's great potential for abuse there. Right. Uh, you can you use it too much and you're going to deplete your brain and you're going to load down your liver. I mean, you need to use your head use common sense with these things and that is what I've come to learn is that a lot of these things and a lot of these substances are sacred especially when you get into the realm of the plants and they have to be treated with the highest respect Um, during my journey and all my insanity when I got into my very very early 20s I think it was 21 or 22 I made a decision to stop everything and I went out on New Year's Eve and I took two hits of acid this is years and years and years ago, mind you. And I <laughs> I'm smoked, looking at uh, a gray beard right now. Yeah, okay. okay so. <laughs> I smoked a whole lot of weed, and I stopped doing everything. And um, I had also been a vegetarian. And so um, I was a vegetarian for 23 years, and I stopped all manner of substances for 13. And I mean, I wouldn't drink Coca-Cola. I wouldn't take aspirin if I had a headache. I took nothing for 13 years. And for 13 years, I searched and I read and I meditated and I did yoga and I did martial arts and I did lots of things. And I came full circle back to the plants. Really? Yes. And um, Terrence McKenna had a lot to do with that. So how did, what did you come back to? And then let's uh, lead into uh, your, your shamanism apprentice uh, studies that you've been doing <laughs> in the last several years. Uh, now how, did, how did you get back into it after? Obviously, you were still searching. You're still yeah. Looking. And I kept getting asked from time to time by some people to smoke cannabis. Now, when I stopped smoking cannabis, the biggest and the best was Colombian was it. Mm. 
Colombian for 40 bucks an ounce. <laughs> and then if you're on a budget, you get the Mexican for 15 You know, every once in a while, if you got lucky, you might get some Jamaican for 20 and 25 But, like, that was a rarity. Wow. And um, then, then you'd start to see every once in a while you'd get the Thai stick. Mm. But that was, like, very exotic, expensive, exotic, you know, high-quality mm-hmm. stuff. But that's what there was. So after all the years, I come back, and then they got all this domestic crops, which way, you know, the, the Humboldt stuff. And, and I mean, <laughs> it, it, it... Knock your socks no, off. I, I mean, it doesn't... Uh, stuff never even came close to what they got now. And I was like, God, all this whole new exotic world. So I kept getting bugged and bugged. And I was dealing with stress in different ways. And I finally came to a conclusion that, well, if I'm stressed out in this way and now, and I'm trying to do this, that, and the other thing, maybe if I smoked a little cannabis, it might. And I did. And I liked it, especially the new stuff. <laughs> now you're making it sound like a gateway drug here. <laughs> well, I, no, I got my own dealings with that, actually, yeah. which I hope, hope to touch on here. But okay. um, I um, rediscovered it and started using it occasionally, and then I got more drawn into it. And I realized that every once in a while like that, it's a natural thing, and it, it may not necessarily be a bad thing because I had some positive effects for it. And then, about a year and a half after that decision, when I was occasional, uh, a guy I knew who was a firefighter, who was in his 50s, came to me. And his son, who was in his 20s, came to me within a week of each other, individually. And neither one knew the other one was coming to me. Both of them were saying that they had experimented with LSD and and had weird experiences, and they wanted me to guide them. Hmm. So I thought about it for a while, and then I set it up, and they got the stuff, and we went out to this place out in the middle of nowhere and had an amazing time. And um, I, I was starting to look at it from a sacred spiritual aspect, which I never had before. Everything I ever did was like, I'll try anything once. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, some things I want, I, I don't want to, you know, experience like getting a cactus shoved up my behind. <laughs> you know, some things I'm not. But I mean, in terms of altered states... Um, there's a lot of things I always wanted to try. Some things I won't try now. I, I won't try crack. Uh, I already know. I don't need to. Don't need to go there. But um, I started just dabbling a little bit. And then when I read what Terrence had to say and the common sense of it and the fact that plants are here and we're primitives and we're trying them and you have these experiences... And starting to do it with then, now it's huge, but then what I started to realize is forming an intention. Mm. Putting an intention behind what you do. And starting to do things in more of a, a ceremonial way as opposed to, well, let's try this and see what happens in my brain. Mm-hmm. Kind of a thing. Um, and I started getting more into that, which drew me deeper and deeper into the shamanism. And in the shamanism, I started to learn tried true and ancient ways of uh, partaking of plants which are part of creation which are here for a reason uh, which are our as uh, I was just watching Carl Sagan the other night mm-hmm. and he talked about our cousins cousins are plants and who's been around here longer mm. right and if a plant can talk to you how does a plant talk to you well how it looks how it smells how it grows and then if you ingest it in the right way what you experience is a, a shared language of the plant that's not rational. And um, non-rational learning is what shamanism is really all about, among other things. And non-rational learning is what our society is in dire need of. I agree. In a big way. I agree. You know, we're, 
we're male-dominated, and we're in all these, I can swear this is great, all these fucked-up wars, and um, all these things that are bad because we're overly testosterone-loaded, and it's all based on fear. And, um, you know, the feminine is repressed. So our job and what the plants do, what the plants have done for me is to help me reconnect with my feminine side. And I say feminine, I mean sensitivity. I'm not talking sexual orientation. I'm talking feminine intuition, the heart. And so in this male-dominated bullshit left-brain society that we're in right now, we're led by the brain and it's a losing proposition because it's way out of balance. Just look around and it's rather obvious. And um, the medicines learn, teach you to learn how to connect with your heart and to follow your heart instead of your head because your heart is actually a superior brain because the heart is the seat of intuition and intuition is superior to logic because logic is straight and linear and you can take a logic you can take a logical process and turn it upon itself and come up with something that makes sense and it can still be wrong Whereas if you truly get into intuition and your heart, and intuition it can grab like numerous things at once and give you a flash. You get a flash of intuition. You get a flash of insight. It's because you have the ability to, it's even beyond parallel processing. It's multifaceted where you can grab numerous things that seem to be disconnected and find the connecting thing in all of them. And you'll do it all in a flash. So it's actually superior. So... um, in terms of being balanced individuals, you know, we're bass backwards now as a society. We're following our heads and our poor hearts are getting dragged in the, in the muck behind it. But um, we can learn more to lead with our hearts in the right way. And actually, our heads should follow our hearts. That's actually the proper way. And ultimately, it should be a balance between the two and a synergistic communication and connection um, in order to really use your brain to its fullest capacities. You know, uh, we've been talking about you studying shamanism, and I think that uh, maybe some people are thinking uh, you've just been sitting around reading a lot of books about shamanism. Uh, why don't you give us a... I know the last couple of years have been uh, pretty intense. Uh, you've been traveling all over the world studying shamanism. Mm-hmm. So give us a little overview of what's been going on in uh, that pursuit. Okay, thank you. Um, one thing is I used to be, when Lorenzo and I met, I was deep in the bowels of corporate America. And uh, shamanism is the ability to live in two worlds at the same time, or actually more than many worlds at the same time, and to be able to function in all of them. I always like to think of it as being in the worlds, but not of the worlds. So at the time, I was in corporate America, and um, the more I got into the shamanism, the more I was freaking them out because I was getting results for things, and they couldn't figure it out. And to make a long story short, my energy became increasingly incompatible with theirs until they finally threw me out, which was one of the best things in the world that ever happened to me. Because it allowed me the ability to take a, uh, a detailed course of shamanic study. I've been going to Peru, I think I've gone ten times in the past seven years. Uh, one group I went seven years in a row straight, doing extended plant dietas in the diet, primarily with ayahuasca, and also uh, other plants with it, in a, in a very restricted diet. And I also joined up with another group, and so um, I spent extended time in the jungles of the Amazon, uh, working with primarily with ayahuasca and other plants. I spent time in the Andes working in Inca traditions with San Pedro. I spent time down in the Mexican deserts doing the huichol uh, peyote rituals. I've 
gone throughout the, the southwestern United States um, and also up into Canada doing a lot of American Indian rituals. So I've been really seeking out um, as many ancient plants as I can and learning the traditions and learning the the historical traditions that they've been worked in and then, of course, working it into a modern-day uh, life because things change and the world as we know it changes and so you have to be able to adapt and that's one of the keys of survival is adaptability so um, in the past few years there was a period there where I was in three different groups I was working with Peruvian shamans and then I was working with Shipibo Indians which are um, they're Peruvian Indians but they're not quite the same tradition as these other shamans and then I was working with another group who uses um, a lot of American Indian and we troll traditions along with uh, the uh, ayahuasca. So there was a couple of years there where I was doing like, I did like, I was counting them, I did like 30 ayahuasca sessions in a year, um, also lots of San Pedro sessions, and then other medicine healing uh, sessions, sometimes with smaller groups. Sometimes I was leading, sometimes I was participating. Um, and it got pretty wild and intense, but it was a really steep learning curve. Um, very difficult at points. And um, certainly not something for everybody. But one of the things I've realized, and people told me this, is they would say to me, you're, you're going down there for us, or you're doing this for us. And the implications of that are now hitting me pretty heavily. Um, there's a lot of truth to it, because I've been really tying into some ancient healing modalities and psychotherapies. And if you don't get anything else from this podcast, here's the thing. The absolute best thing you can do for yourself and for everybody, for the universe, for the cosmos, for the race, for humanity, truly the absolute best thing you can do for everybody is to work on yourself and heal yourself. Because when you heal yourself, you heal part of the collective and you begin to realize that everybody around you is a mirror because we're all one. So when you see somebody and they may irk you in whatever way, that's a part of yourself that you need to look at because that's that part of them that's mirroring you and the energy in them is resonating to the energy in you. So this took me years and years to grasp and I'm finally now getting a handle on it that the best thing I can do for everybody else is to heal myself because... How in the hell can you ever love anybody else if you can't love yourself first? Really good point. Really good point. Thank you. You know, I've, I've noticed that uh, just in the time that we've been alive, essentially since uh, R. Gordon Wasson and, and Maria Sabina had their famous meeting in the 50s uh, and, and uh, the mushroom came into Western consciousness more, it seems like more and more... Uh, shamanism, shamanistic practices have been seeping into the Western world that have the shamans uh, that you worked with in Peru, uh, for example, spoken about that or is it just, uh, is this, what's going on here? How come it's coming out now? Numerous reasons. One of the main ones is that organized religion basically sucks. Um, you know, <laughs> amen. The, amen. Amen. <laughs> They've been really seduced by power. And so um, one of the major tenets, so to speak, for lack of better words, between shamanism and organized religion, this is the difference. Organized religion is based on the words of a prophet or prophets. So you have the prophet who has the experience, who speaks the words. 
he tells somebody, somebody else writes it down, somebody else translates it, somebody else reads it and interprets it for somebody else. I mean, it's way screwed over and diluted. Shamanism, on the other hand, is based on experiential knowledge, period. If you have a divine, rapturous experience with the Creator, it's going to be deeply personal, and other people aren't even going to be able to relate to it. There's um, Plato's Myth of the Cave, which I'll just say really briefly. Is the Myth of the Cave is there's a bunch of people chained to a, a cave wall, and all they see are shadows passing on the wall in front of them. That's all they know. That's their reality. One day, somebody breaks the chains and goes outside and sees a world full of color and sunlight and beauty and animals and plants and all that, and they're just thrilled beyond imagining. And they'll go back and try to tell everybody else who's still chained to the wall of the cave, and they don't get it because they've got nothing to relate to. So shamanism is based on direct personal experience. And so one of the big core things of shamanism is that you make it up as you go. But you have to be careful because some people make it up and they'll make up some pretty wild stuff that doesn't really apply. <laughs> and that's a whole other animal where you can get into trouble. And that's where following these traditions and learning their traditions gives you the, the foundation to start making up your own that are based on tried and true practices. Yeah, because... Uh, any, any, for any religion to survive, regardless, it needs um, to adapt. For any organism to survive, it needs to adapt. Um, adaptation is the key to survival. So, um, shamanism is based on experiential knowledge as opposed to organized religions. And one of the interesting things that fascinates me about organized religions is that if you go to your preacher or your minister or your church then you can kind of put it all off on them. And if you do everything that they say, maybe you'll get saved. But it's a fascinating thing that the ego does because it's a way of not taking responsibility for yourself. Mm. And truly, we must all take responsibility for ourselves. That's the key because what everybody does is try not to take responsibility. And if you can just go to church every Sunday and give them your money and do what the preacher says and say your Hail Marys or whatever you, whatever happened church you happen to be in, whatever you're supposed to do for penance, that you're going to be cured, well, that's a really good way of not looking at what you really need to look at because ultimately nobody really wants to look at what they want to look at within themselves. Those are all the things that we project onto other people. <clears throat> this segues into a form of psychotherapy that is quite ancient that many of the ancients knew and modern psychiatry has missed to a large degree although now it's coming more and more people like Stan Groff um, you know even Ralph Metzner people who have been doing some kind of cutting edge things um, have uh, brought more into play and it has to do with it's a Jungian concept of individuation which is basically confronting all the hidden forgotten suppressed and lost aspects of yourself and bringing them home because the more you bring them home, the more unified you become. And the more you come into your personal power. And that's what really this is all about. Um, the, in, in shamanism, they call it the power path. Because it's a process of psychological integration. And when you take certain things, uh, particularly the, the best top one, in my humble opinion, is ayahuasca. Um, ayahuasca has a way of finding your deepest fears and bringing them out. So when you do it within a sacred circle that's protected with a good intention, 
then those parts of you that you've been terrified of will come out and you can deal with them um, more on your own terms. So the more you get all the instruments in the symphony to play together instead of competing, what happens is you become quieter and more peaceful over time within and you really start getting into power and it comes down to the differences of, of power and force anything it's like I was saying earlier about no matter what you do you're always going to pay a price when you're forceful with something in some way um, it's always trying to swing back to the center so as much as you push in one direction is as much as it's going to swing back to that center and the more you become aware of it and the more you grow in awareness, the more you become the eye of the storm. And you think real hard about the eye of the storm. And you look at these horrendous hurricanes. And you go right in the middle of them and it's just peaceful and there's birds flying. And it's like a beautiful day, right? And all around, chaos and high-powered winds and destruction. So the journey really is toward becoming more whole. Not perfect, mind you. Whole. Because in the wholeness is completion. And that's one of the underlying themes of shamanism. But shamanism goes where most are terrified to go. And that's why it's had such a bad rap. And when these European explorers would come over in the beginning and, oh, they're possessed by devils and blah, blah, blah. Well, they were their own personal devils. But they were nothing like the devils that was possessing the conquerors, <laughs> right? Who was afraid, you know, um, to look at that. So it, it is about um, coming into your power and rediscovering yourself. And the big thing that we're rediscovering um, as a society is our feminine sides. And um, Ter Terence brought it up really well. In the beginning, you know, there were the goddess religions. Mother Earth, Gaia, you know, mushroom cults, things of that nature. And um, the way Terence described it, and I tend to think that I believe this to be true is that we were female-dominated, for lack of a better word, and the women screwed it up. So the guys took over and said, well, I'm going to take over, I'm going to take charge. Well, look where the hell they brought us, right? <laughs> and I say hell, yeah, because yeah, it's worse, right? So now we're going back and bringing back the feminine. Not to take over, but to be equal. And that's the ascension of the goddess and the rise of the feminine and the... Um, the heart that's coming out. And then when we're more balanced as individuals and our intellect and our emotions are balanced, then we can uh, deal with things from a more effective, balanced perspective. And that's, that's very important. I've studied a lot about uh, sacred geometry, which ties in with crop circles, and um, also ancient Egypt. And there were talks of even, uh, which I tend to believe now from all that I've read, about Atlantean civilizations who were the precursors to the Egyptians. And they would talk about the fact that why didn't they find more written language? And what I read, which really rung true to me, is that they were communicating with their hearts and not their minds. And if anybody's ever had any experience um, with ayahuasca... Um, when they first discovered it, they said that the active ingredient, they called it telepathy. And when you get into an ayahuasca space and a good group of people and you're really in sacred space together, your hearts are connected and the telepathy starts to happen. You start to have telepathic experiences. 
So I believe that the more we're leading with our heart instead of our brains, the more we will transcend the intellect and the written language and the confusion and, and even the Tower of Babel and all the different languages in the world. It doesn't matter what language you speak. If you're coming from your heart, you will connect with somebody because it's an energetic and it's from spirit, which is beyond the rational, the, the material as we know it. So... Um, Thinking of the heart as a superior method of communication would explain why there wasn't a lot of written language in the past and why those advanced societies didn't because they were communicating with their hearts because the heart is what has been um, left behind or trampled over in the world you know, today as we know it with all the, the chaos and the war and the bombs and all that stuff. You know, I was, uh, as, as you were just talking, I was thinking how the... Uh the West has really infiltrated every place. You know, there's McDonald's everywhere you go, and, and uh, our ways have kind of made it down into the jungle, so there's no really pure society that's uh, uh, untouched by this now. But in, in the cultures where they're still practicing shamans, uh, how do they bring the youth in? How do they, how do they initiate the younger people? Uh, at what age, and how is that done? Because it seems like now the shamanistic uh, practices are seeping into the West, so we're kind of cross-pollinating. Uh, how are they handling it uh, in a Western uh, world, a uh, dominated world? It's kind of a sad subject, because um, what I've seen down in the Amazon is that the missionaries will come in, uh, particularly with the Shipibo Indians, I've seen it. Well, they'll come in, and they will say, oh, hey, look, we've got electric guitars and musical instruments and all this cool stuff. And you can play with them, but you got to come to church every day first. And there's a bit of bribery going on. And a lot of the uh, these, you know, preliterate cultures who haven't had a lot of Western exposure see things like like uh, a boombox and stuff like that, and they just go bonkers over them because it's new. And so there's been a bit of a gap um, between the um, youth and the old age. One of the reasons um, I've been embraced by different cultures when I get on exploring is because I'm, I'm not coming down here saying, here, here's how it is and here's what you need to do and here's how you learn. I'm going down there saying, hey, I don't know shit. What can you show me? Because I'm, I'm here to learn. So they love that. But they do tend to, I know typically like um, in the Shipibos and things, somebody's going to get initiated into ayahuasca. They may be around 14 years old. And they also tend to marry earlier um, because you tend to grow up quicker because life is shorter. And harder. So they do bring in young people to apprentice, but a lot of them are really distracted by all the uh, pomp and circumstance, for lack of better words, of, of Western civilization. So they're always looking for people to pass on traditions to. And uh, some of the people I've worked with um, have worked with the Shipibo Indians, and they have these patterns that are woven into cloth and put on pottery and things like that and they're actually songs that are sung in and if you go to Shipibo villages in the Amazon you can buy lots of these things but a lot of the people don't even know what they are they're just copying these patterns that were shown to them so the people I know will say to them I need you to sing me this song that's in this cloth and if you don't know the song I don't want to buy your cloth mm -hmm. you know, as a way of keeping the tradition alive and the other thing that uh, some people that I know are doing are um, they're getting people to come in and get pay the money to get the Shipibos certified by the federal government of Peru so they can come and teach in their own schools. So they can teach a tradition and the history that's getting eroded and faded away. Because, 
You know, there's visions of Indians in the jungle running around with feathers in their heads and all that, and there is some of that, but for the most part, because of the history, there's the mestizo population, there's lots of mixed races, and there's been all this movement going on. So there aren't as many pure Indian traditions left. They're diminishing rapidly. But regardless, um, the traditions themselves are living on, even though the people may not be pure of blood, the traditions are living on. Well, that's good. Yeah. So is, is that a good... That's, yeah, that that's, uh, answers that question. It's not, not a happy answer necessarily. No, but, uh, no. but it sounds like they're trying to compensate as best they can, uh, given the conditions, getting into the schools themselves and teaching the traditional uh, methods. Yeah, they, you know, I had another eye-opening experience some years back in Peru where... I had been out in the pristine jungle for 10 days and we came back down river by canoes for, you know, a couple hours and got to the first village and we're all just like blissed out and wide-eyed from this intense jungle experiences with plants and all that. And we get off the boat and there's these kids at this village and they're drinking their water from the plastic bottles and throwing them in the river. Mm. And we're just about had a heart attack. I mean, what are you doing? They don't know any better, and that's what's been given to them. And, and there, you know, there are, um, where I've gone, there are um, mahogany poachers, and it's not a good thing. But you realize that these people are struggling just to survive and just to exist, and they've been inundated with Western culture and society in ways that throws their ways out of balance. So they're just struggling to survive. So even though you can think, on one level, okay, you got all the you know standard oil and Shell and Exxon and Mobil and all that, right? And Enron and all that. I mean, yeah, they're rapers and pillagers, but um, it's also happening on a lower level with people who are truly ignorant, who don't know the bigger picture, and they're struggling just to survive, just to have a meal for the next day. So it's it's kind of a sad thing. Yeah, it is. Uh, well, you know, we're we're. Uh, I'd like to sit here and and keep going, but uh, we're going to uh, have a file size a little too large to download. <laughs> but one of the uh, uh, and, and definitely, uh, I'll, I'll obviously be back, uh, well, I'll be back a lot of times. He'll be back. To uh, do another recording, and perhaps we'll get some uh, feedback from some of our listeners, some questions they'd like to uh, give you, too. But, you know, we've got a very, uh, the audience is just like the tribe. You know, there are uh, 60-year-old men and women who have and haven't done psychoactives. There are uh, 17-year-old young men and women who have or haven't. But it's a, a big, broad range. A lot of people are feeling... Pretty isolated, pretty alone. Because uh, I know when I before I kind of connected with the tribe, I was uh, the same way. You know, I I was in a situation where at the time my partner uh, didn't approve of all this stuff, and and uh, you know your friends, relatives, neighbors, coworkers, you can't really talk to them about it. Uh, and I don't know if you've got any words of wisdom for the the lonely traveler out there who's trying to answer uh, these questions. But uh, if you have any words of wisdom, uh, I'd sure love to hear them. Well, for starters. Uh, I don't know how this come out in the right way, but keep your mouth shut because uh, on one level we're in a snitch society. So if you don't know somebody, don't deal with them. Um, and be careful if somebody approaches you too. There there have been stories of they, they send out squads at, at uh, Burning Man and they'll dress a certain way and you'll get this babelicious come up to you and, you know, or doodalicious if you're a babe yourself. And... Um, approach you to want to do certain things that are not legal and you can get yourself into some deep doo-doo. So unless you really know somebody really well, don't. Better safe than sorry. And along with that, if you keep your mouth shut, they can't read your mind. So don't say anything 
you know, that could be recorded in any way, whether it's on your cell phone or if you're doing some on email or whatever. Um, be careful because you just don't know. And there's all this really sick things going on in our society. So so be careful. And and I guess as sort of a, a final note, I want to mention, I, I mentioned this a couple of times, I think, that what you do with these medicines, the intention you put behind it is what's important. And so if you put a healing intention behind it, and you really do some good ceremony and some really good pure intention for, for healing yourself and the earth. After all this chaos I've been through, that's the best approach. And that's a shamanic approach. And that's an ancient approach that has gone on since before history as we know it. Since prehistoric times. There's a sacredness to it all. So if you keep that in mind and um, careful what you get and be careful who you deal with, you'll do okay. About the only thing I'd add is, uh, hey, don't take yourself too seriously either. That's right. <laughs> and uh, with that, I think we'll uh, we'll call this a, a day, and uh, we'll uh, return for more. Thank you for indulging me, because I sure enjoyed it. Well, it took a little while for us to get up to speed, but uh, as you can tell... Mateo has not only been to the edge quite a few times, he's also brought back a lot of valuable information. While it uh, isn't obvious to someone who hasn't known Matt for a long time, the changes that he's made in his approach to life and in his attitude about life since beginning in earnest to follow a shamanic path have really been quite obvious to his friends and family and very remarkable. You know, I know a lot of... uh, urban shaman who talk a good talk, but uh, Mateo, as his friends call him, he also walks the walk, and uh, believe me, he has gone through more than anyone's allocated share of ordeals, both uh, physical and uh, extra-dimensional, and to tell you the truth, his, uh, his training put him through a lot more intensive work than I'm willing to do myself. So, uh, just like in any indigenous tribe, we rely on our shaman to go out there to the far, far edge of reality and come back with something we can use in our own lives uh, and do it without the risk and hassle involved in doing such intensive work ourselves. But if you do discover such a calling for yourself, you might want to contact Mateo directly to learn more about shamanic apprenticeships. And I've uh, placed a link to his website on our page with the program notes to this podcast, which is number 80, by the way. And you can find links to this and all of our program notes via our main podcast page, which is at www.matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. And there you'll find a link to the notes from the Psychedelic Salon blog where you can also comment on these podcasts and, and on other items of interest if you want. Speaking of items of interest, I, I wish I had time to mention all of the email I've received in the past month. And if I haven't replied to you personally, that isn't because I don't appreciate the great thoughts and comments that you're sending. For example, uh, Casper writes from Denmark to say, uh, among other things, Now, I didn't even know about Terrence McKenna, Mind States Conferences, or your psychedelic salon at the start of 2006. But this all changed in what feels like 50 years reduced to one year. Now, one would be a newbie in this game with only one year experience, but that's not what it seems like when you can learn more in one day than what it used to take one year. The psychedelic experience changed my whole life so fast that I can't believe it myself. 
Well, I sure do know what you mean, Casper. You know, at times I've felt the same way and wondered where all this was leading. And then I'd have a little setback of some kind and seem to lose the plot again, which is something they don't teach you in Psychedelics 101, by the way. And that is that while these sacred medicines can help you make enormous strides in your personal growth, it's still up to you to do the hard work of bringing what you discovered during one of those profound experiences back into your everyday life. And once you get to know a lot of people who are also on this path, one of the first things that will strike you most likely is that even with the help of these wonderful medicines, there are uh, still a, <laughs> a lot of really screwed up people in the tribe. You know, in the final analysis, these medicines that we call entheogens or psychedelics, uh, well, there's something like money. You know, they don't really change you. They just make you more of what you already are. You know, I've got to mention just one more thing from Casper's email that brought a real smile to my lips. He was uh, saying how he and some of his trusted friends were working to make stronger connections to the ever-growing sense of global consciousness that is now taking hold and that they discovered several websites to help him along. And then he said that uh, after finding so many resources on the internet that, and I quote, <laughs> my learning intake rose to a level only aliens would be able to handle. <laughs> Don't you really love that? A level only aliens would be able to handle. And uh, since I'm sure that I'm not the only one who feels like an alien during the family holiday dinners, I'm going to recommend that we all begin to think of ourselves as fast-learning aliens, you know. And then we can say things like, did you see what those humans in America are doing now? <laughs> you know, compared to those jerks in Washington, we are aliens. Uh, because I can't think of a single person who wants to be like them. Can you? And uh, I guess maybe this would be a good time to thank our listeners from outside the U.S. who join us each week. I don't mean to imply that you're aliens. I know that if I had the good fortune to be living outside the States right now, I probably wouldn't be very inclined to listen to or read anything that comes out of here. But uh, fortunately, the tribe is everywhere, and they're very understanding. So even if you think you're out there all alone at the end of the psychedelic line, you can be sure that there's someone not too far away who thinks and feels very much like you do. Just to give you an idea of how widespread the interest in psychedelic topics is, I just now went out and took a look at our weblogs to see what countries people were from who had downloaded a podcast in the past 24 hours. And here's a, a partial list of those countries. The UK, Sweden, Canada, Australia, Mauritius, Indonesia, Israel, Belgium, Netherlands, Spain, Hong Kong, Poland, Italy, France, Norway, Germany, South Africa, Japan, China, Mexico, Hungary, Switzerland, Denmark, Finland, Argentina, Brazil, India, Austria, New Zealand, Czech Republic, and the Russian Federation. Might have said a couple twice, and I think there are probably a few more, but you get the idea. I don't know uh, how we're all going to find one another, but the good news is that there probably isn't a place on this planet that doesn't have someone who's interested in the same things we are. And eventually we're all going to have to come out of the closet. Because, my friends, the closet is really getting crowded. <laughs> and actually, uh, there are already a lot of ways to find one another. I did it by uh, meeting people at conferences like John Hanna's Mind State series. 
And by the way, John's uh, agreed to do an interview for the salon, and I hope to do that in the next couple weeks. So if you have any questions for him, please send them along to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com, and I'll ask him for you. Some of you have uh, suggested ways we can connect with others here in the salon, and I've tried a couple of things, like the wiki and the new salon blog. And in the past, I sent out a newsletter each month, but uh, for those of you who are wondering why you haven't received one lately, well, it's been about a year now since I sent one out. But I I do plan on gearing that back up in a few months, uh, at least after I've completed a couple of other projects. So if you've signed up for our mailing list, I apologize for not sending anything out, but I do have your email address, and I'll let you know when it's active again. Right now, I want to keep focused on creating new content each week, and thanks to several very generous donors, my worries about paying our hosting bills have faded into the background for a while. I think last week I mentioned that Michael sent a generous donation, but I didn't have a chance to comment on something he said in an email that I really liked. He said, I've been listening to your podcasts, and funny enough, The Dope Fiend, since about the 10th or so episode and only have great things to say about it. I plan on going to my first Burning Man this year and hope to say a quick cheer in person. And he goes on to say, I'm 22 and, like you, grew up brainwashed. Fortunately, without being raised in religion. Well, you're certainly lucky not to have had organized religion shoved down your throat when you're little, Michael. He says, Only after high school did my very sane and caring parents offer me a toke. Soon I began reading some Don Juan and found an interest in psychedelic thinking and how it seemed in synchronicity with my beloved quantum physics and Buddhism. I have since introduced my parents and drummer to your salon. Well, I'm looking forward to meeting you at the burn this year, Michael. I hope you make it, and uh, I hope your drummer and parents will be there, too. They really sound like my kind of people. Also, I want to send a very big thank you to Corey and to Robert. Robert, I think, is uh, from the U.K., and uh, who also made a generous donation to the salon this past week. And I'm really, really grateful for your help, and uh, thanks to you, we've got our overhead covered for a couple of months now, which frees me up to begin planning some more in-person interviews. And if all goes well, I hope to be back up in the Santa Cruz area in a month or so to interview some of the merry pranksters of 60s fame. Also, I, uh, I hope to borrow that mysterious missing trialogue tape from Ralph Abraham when I get up there and get it digitized for a future podcast. In the email I just read from Michael, uh, he mentioned the Dope Fiend, and I want to give him another plug in case you aren't familiar with the Dope Fiend and his wonderful cannabis podcast network. Now, you might think that with a name like Dope Fiend, his show would be a wild and out-of-control romp like Are You Serious does, but it's not like that at all. Well, it is is fun, fun program to listen to, but it, it also is a serious show with a highly intelligent host, and I highly recommend it and all of the other programs on their network, uh, like The Sounds of Worldwide Weed, which is one of the best world music podcasts around. And on their network, you'll also find the most excellent Grow Report by Zandor, Stories from Lefty, and a new program called Psychonautica with KMO and Max Freakout. In fact, I hope to be joining them for a Psychonautica program in the not-too-distant future. And while I'm at it, I also want to mention KMO's regular podcast from the Sea Realm, the Consciousness Realm. 
He's had some really fascinating interviews over there, and it's a program I look forward to listening to each week. So if you don't yet have your podcast listening time already filled, well, you can find links to KMO, The Dope Fiend, and uh, a couple other interesting podcasts on our salon's main webpage, which you can find at www.matrixmasters.com slash podcasts. Well, I'd like to go on and read a few more emails, but the hour is late and I've still got to get this posted so I can start working on next week's program, which is one I'm sure you're going to enjoy. It's another interview and it's on a topic that I've been hearing a lot about uh, on other podcasts lately, Salvia Divinorum. And my interview is with Daniel Siebert, who has probably been more instrumental in educating the world about salvia than anyone else you can name. His website is www.sagewisdom, S-A-G-E-W-I-S-D-O-M, sagewisdom.org. And it should always be your first stop before you venture into the world of salvia divinorum. I know that I've said the same thing about Arrowhead.org when it comes to psychedelics, but uh, salvia is the one exception I'd make about starting every trip at Arrowhead. Sagewisdom.org is definitely the place to uh, go and find out information about that divine plant, and you'll hear a lot more about it next week. Before I go, I should mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 License. And if you have any questions about that, you can click on the link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage or uh, send me an email to lorenzo at matrixmasters.com if you have any questions. Thanks again to Jacques, who uh, you heard Matt mention in his interview today, as well as to uh, Cordell and Wells, who collectively are known as Chateau Hayuk, whose music we are using here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo. Signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Thank you.